Rakim and I recorded this interview in May 2021. Despite my best intentions, the continued impact of the restrictions due to the COVID pandemic and honestly, the impact of the attempted coup still was impacting my ability to really focus. I was thrown off. During the show, I will say that I wondered if Rakim was considering leaving his job because it was clear when we were speaking, that there was an increasing tension between his personal aspirations and the aspirations that his organization felt he was allowed to have. My instincts were right, and he would end up leaving his old role pretty soon after we recorded this episode and ended up pinning a viral post for the griot called Buy Corporate America, How Firing My Boss Saved My Black Life. What I loved about this post is that it's the first one that I've actually seen written by a black man, a man in the professional space, talking about the impact of corporate life on his health and wellness. In this episode, we'll talk about being in the personal finance space, the unexpected tension when work and your personal passions collide. Rakim's personal story also highlights why representation matters and the impact of financial modeling and how we envision our finances and just our aspirations for ourselves. I really hope you enjoy this show. Want to lead a more socially equitable financial life but aren't sure where to start? Grab my Good Money Toolkit today, a resource sharing the ins and outs of leading a socially equitable lifestyle without going broke. Grab the resource in today's show notes or use the following link, michelleismoneyhungry.com backslash good dash money. I'm excited to tell you about my first personal finance book, Not a Financial Unicorn, which is available for pre-order now. If you're looking for inspiration, validation, and ideas on how to better your financial life, Not a Financial Unicorn has been written with the other 92% of us in mind. In the conversation that I had with Rakim, he shared how when he was younger, his financial aspirations were impacted by what he observed around him. It wasn't until he started working at a bank that he was exposed to different financial ideas and conversations. Not a Financial Unicorn is my way of validating the unsexy financial journeys that the majority of Americans have as they navigate through bridging the financial gap between American financial policy, their finances, and their income. Pre-order your book today. having me. My name is Rakim Sabri. I am a financial coach, a TED speaker, two-time author. Most of the work that I do centers around financial empowerment, but I'm able to be flexible and kind of going into different avenues. So, you know, sometimes that conversation happens on a politics and sometimes that conversation happens on a personal branding. And sometimes that conversation happens on just a general life experience. And so, not your hardcore suit and tie, you need to save budget and plan for retirement conversation, but definitely more so around mindset. And, you know, how do you take that mindset into recognizing opportunity for attracting wealth and building wealth for yourself? How did you even get into this? Why was personal finance the space for you? Ironically, I work in banking. I'm actually a 10-year veteran this year. Started at, uh, thank you very much. 
started at um, a large national bank when I was 21 years old as a part-time teller. I did not have any desire to be a banker growing up. So it was definitely accidental. And I did not have a desire to stay in banking for as long as I have. So it kind of grew on me. And you know, as such, by osmosis, there's a lot of tools, strategies, uh, products that I was exposed to that I had to learn in order to best serve the customers and clients that came in. But not every banker is financially educated, right? So there's an aspect of, um, you know, self-starting and, and, and really just kind of prioritizing what does my financial picture look like that I had to implement and underscore. I encountered the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I think, you know, is a, a great starter for a lot of people. And I started to look at, you know, that cash flow quadrant, looking at the side that says I am an employee of a business or I'm a self-employed business owner mm. trading my time for money. And then aspiring to move over into the other side where it says, you know, I am an owner of systems or an investor and my money is working for me. So I became super obsessed with the uh, concepts explored in that book, my background growing up financially definitely kind of lends to the passion there. And once I became very conscious of the things that were missing from uh, my financial picture and just my financial perspective, I started to socialize that with friends and family who could not understand because they weren't on the other side of that conversation. So it turned into a passion project for me where I wanted to educate people on the things that I was talking about so that we can have a conversation. It just it morphed. It took its own form from there. What was your background? What about this book resonated with you so much? What, what spoke to you? Ironically, I hate this book. I hate it so much and I hate him. But <laughs> but I, I think it's important to say that different people speak to other people differently at the moment they need to hear the message. And so I should also mention that I didn't understand the four hour work week when I was gifted the book by one of my student assistants when I worked at in education, I was working at a university and I was gifted that book. And I, I, and I had been talking about quitting and all this and my student assistant gave me the book and I didn't get it. So I'm curious and I, and I laugh as I share that with you. So I say all that to say that what about this book was like this this resonates with me that perhaps so, I'm, I'm not getting i'll comment too before i answer that question that um i do not promote that book anymore um i used to be like the biggest supporter and promoter of his work and you know that extends beyond the text and then last year there was an incident where he made a comment on twitter in regards to the black lives matter movement uh, and their response to george floyd I was just completely floored by it. So I wrote an open letter through uh, the Griot uh, publication that I contribute to, to Robert Kiyosaki. Oh, and wow. it went viral. Like it was going crazy. Uh, people were responding to it. I included a link to uh, my most recent book in the open letter. And I saw more sales that month than ever. Huge catalyst for a lot of the success and exposure that I've had. But to answer your question, I think it just was a different way of thinking about things. Mm. I'll dig a little bit deeper for you and say that I actually took his, his three-day seminar. So I paid for that and I 
paid for his advanced seminar. So that was several thousands of dollars. And, and when I say several, I mean like $12,000 that I invested wow. into his, uh, his training program because I was so bought into what he was talking about. Um, my experience is, you know, I, I come from a humble beginning. My parents were teenagers, 17 and 18 when I was born. Mm. And so they moved from the Midwest to New York arguably one of the hardest cities to raise a child in as children themselves. And when they separated, probably around the time I was 12, I became very intimate with the household finances and understanding, you know, what budgeting looked like, that we had food stamps, that we used Section 8, and by osmosis of just kind of living that experience, I determined that for myself, when I was of age in my 20s, I wanted to get an apartment in New York and I wanted to have Section 8 and I wanted to have food stamps. So this book changed my worldview in, mm. first of all, exposing me to, you know, what is the bar and what the bar should be in terms of aspirations that I could go out and own property, that I could go out and, you know, invest, that I could build wealth. And I think he does a really good job in the text of making wealth building a relatable concept and so I have to give him his kudos there mm. but where where I don't feel so positively about his work is that it's very clear his audience is not me right the people that look for, look like me in terms of the sharing of knowledge and simultaneously it's very clear that his audience is me in terms of who he's looking for to pay him for his services. So when I looked around the room in his uh, three-day seminar and his advanced training, um, which of course is licensed out, I noticed that most of the participants were African-American, Latino. Really? Uh, yeah, 100%. And the people that were investing in the programs were, were those people. And you know, there's very aggressive sales tactics that they use you know, tricks and, and such that they teach you to raise money very quickly so that you can afford the course. Mm. And um, it's very predatory. If I'm going to be very honest about it, it's very predatory. They prey on your desperation. And it's the people who are in desperate situations who are investing in his programs looking for a way out. So, um, you know, that was kind of a turnoff for me once I got to the other side, not saying that the material wasn't valuable, but understanding that that material, understanding now that that material was readily available for free, mm -hmm. if I knew what to look for and understanding at that particular point in time, the $12,000 that I invested was all the money that I had. It was all the money that I had saved with the intention of buying a house based off of reading his book. And I thought in the way that they delivered the training that I was going to be able to recoup that money very quickly and then go on to build wealth. Wow. This was not what I was expecting. And I have so many thoughts, but I think one, I want to say thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that part of the business because he made me so mad. Um, the, the thing that made me mad wasn't his mindset around earning. Um, actually, I, I agree with you. He does a wonderful job of talking about ownership 
and just how your money can work for itself and that kind of thing. It was something very basic, which was respect. And I felt like there was this in, in the story that he told just a lack of respect for his parent who didn't get the information. And part of the reason why that bothered me was I, like you, had teenage parents. They were 18 and 19. And their parents weren't talking to them about the things that maybe this man had a mentor talking to him about. And what I'm wondering is, and you're observing him and his community that he's created, who he's serving, what happened where you were like, okay, I'm sharing this information with other people. I'm going to create my own platform and I'm going to be consistent about sharing my story, which a lot of people may not feel comfortable doing, uh, serving who I feel like needs to be served. And also just finding that gap of service, like believing that there's a community of people who need what you're sharing and being of service to them and that you could actually make a business from that information. So if you could kind of, you can start anywhere with that very broad question or several questions. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you, just like banking and finance as a whole, this was not the end game that I imagined. I went to a presentation at work, ironically, where they brought in an outside trainer to discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. And it was a Caribbean lady, uh, strong accent, bald head, very just full of energy. And I thought she did such a good job with her delivery. And I'm like, huh, how is this lady coming into a bank and delivering training to executives and you know management and making a living off of this? I was so just impressed by her. And I approached her at the end of the session, we exchanged information and I followed up with her. I said, hey, how do you, how do you get into this line of work? Um, I'm an introvert by nature but I have learned how to communicate effectively um, and just demonstrate extrovert qualities. And so I said, how do I build on that? I wanna be a speaker. Uh, shortly after that experience, there was another experience where another trainer came in and I said, well, you know, there's a market for this. People are doing this thing and they're obviously getting paid. So I did the same thing. I reached out to her and let her know what my aspiration was. I was in the process of writing my first book and that lady encouraged me. She's like, you absolutely have to finish your book. That's your credibility. And so, so starts the journey, right? My book was published. It was on mentoring. And I thought that I was going to get into the speaking circuits specifically focused on mentorship, which is something that I'm equally passionate about. And it wasn't getting any traction. And so, you know, before getting on air, we kind of talked about what is a pivot? Like, you know, how, what is the catalyst for those pivots? I was already doing this work for free. It was kind of like recreational fun, have conversations about, you know, setting up IRAs and putting money into the stock market and, you know, saving and building credit. And I realized there was an opportunity to monetize. And, and more than that, that people were expecting to hear that from me. Uh, some of the feedback that I gotten around the publishing of my first book was that they bought it looking for financial advice. And I was just so resistant to being the finance guy, right? Like I did that by day. That was my day job. I just, I didn't want to dive any deeper. And when I started the process of writing my second book, I actually hired a consultant who um, I know he loves when I tell his story. <laughs> when we were brainstorming around what 
the book was going to be about. I was, I think, 29 at the time. And originally the idea that we were playing around with was 30 things that you should have accomplished before 30. And most of those things were relating to like financial successes that I had had, owning property, investing in a stock market, building great credit. He said to me, he goes, you're at an airport and somebody approaches you and they say, in the next 30 minutes, I need a speaker and I'll pay you whatever it is that you want. What is it that you're going to talk about? And I said, well, the only thing that I could talk about without any preparation is personal finance. And he goes, that's what you need to write about. Mm. And uh, I told him I did not want to write a finance book. I believed at the time that the space was oversaturated. Everybody's talking about financial literacy. It's a buzzword. It's going to be cliche. I'm not going to get an audience. It's not a unique angle. There's just too much noise. I wasn't known. Nobody knew who I was. Like, too much noise. And he goes, that's what you need to write about. And so we fought about it and uh, eventually came up with the title Financially Irresponsible. I wanted the book to be positioned as something that was going to be a conversation starter. Uh, it was going to kind of provide some shock value in, in a very provocative way. I told him, you know, my end goal with this book is to end up on TV. And he goes, okay, well, then now we know what we want to do. So that is kind of what started the pivot in branding from talking about mentoring to talking about personal finance. And while this all was happening, I had applied to, uh, to do a TEDx. Ironically, not ironically, because of course it was planned. I delivered a TEDx talk on financial empowerment the day after I published my book. So oh. yeah. So it launched me into like this new stratosphere, right? Where it's like, you have instantly two really big pieces of credibility. The TEDx talk as a speaker, and then this book on personal finance, and you're outlining your experiences in both. Um, so that made me very comfortable sharing my story at that point of delivery. But leading up to that, there was definitely some hesitance and you know trepidation around, do I want to be this transparent? Do I want to share that you know, my mom had food stamps and that we had section eight. How are my parents going to feel about this? Ultimately, I realized that, uh, of course, with the help of this consultant, that um, my story is my story. Mm. You know, their story is their story, but my story is my story. And so I need to tell it from the vantage point of what my experience is. And both parents and I had conversations separately, of course, about, you know, how they interpreted my interpretation of the experience that I had growing up. And ultimately that led to them giving me their blessing around telling my story my way. Did you self-publish both books or how, how did that come about? I'm a huge fan of self-publishing and I think it's a wonderful way for people to leverage their expertise without waiting to be validated by a publishing house. Um, so I'm curious to, to know how you went about publishing your work and and getting in front of people. So yes, I did self-publish both times. The first time was really just kind of like a stab in the dark. Like I had no idea what I was doing and I was the only one who touched any part of the process. I'm talking about editing, formatting, brainstorming, you know, Googling how to self-publish, getting the ISBN, putting it on Amazon, like the whole nine. The second book, was a little bit more 
uh, involved with third parties. So there was a graphic designer hired. There was, you know, the consultant hired. There was a formatter. There was an editor. So definitely a more polished piece of work. But I was familiar with the process of putting the book on Amazon at this point. It was, I don't want to say a cakewalk the second time around, because now you're corralling other people who contribute to your success. And, you know, to be very transparent, that book was supposed to come out in the summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was delayed. So the, the first delayed date was September 2019. And then uh, it got pushed out into December 2019. I was just determined to make sure that book came out that year. And when I was able to solidify what the TEDx date was, I said, okay, let's align these very strategically. So I published Ooh. it the day before. I love this story for so many reasons. And it, it's almost, you're dropping so many gems that sometimes in interviews, I might inter interrupt and interject and that kind of thing. But I'm just like, he's sharing some good information. And I, I think what I love about what you've done is you, you're very intentional, but you take action. And I think that there are a lot of would-be entrepreneurs out there who are very reluctant to take action because they, they think about all the what-ifs. And to me, I'm thinking about you just released this book at the end of 2019. And what happened four months later? What happened? We had a freaking panorama. And now, you know, that book is so of service to so many people. And it's such, it's an incredible tool to get you in front of audiences. Cause I know you've had a lot more media as a result of taking this, this step and writing that book. And I'm curious, how many pages is that book? Like Amazon pages? I don't have it in front of me. I, I would, I think it's around 200. Um, I can actually pull it up right now. Was it hard for you to do the book? I feel like it wasn't, but I think for some listeners, they may need to hear that it wasn't. <laughs> you know, my author journey, like I said, is, is is varied, right? The first time it was just kind of without any direction, no strategy whatsoever. In fact, the first book that I published was not intentionally designed for public consumption. I was really writing for myself. And midpoint through the process, I realized that there were teachable moments and that I can use that to share with other people. This book, uh, and, and I like the word that you use, intentionality, I knew what the desired end result was before I even started putting the pen to, to the page. Uh, the exercise that the consultant and I went through was actually kind of similar to this conversation. So we would have recorded interviews around the different experiences and items that I wanted to touch on relating to my experience with personal finance. He's asking me as a curious kind of like learner because he had no idea about, you know, the depth, the depth and the breadth of personal finance that I was going to get into. Mm. So because he is not there to critique me, he's there to ask questions and find out more. He was able to ask questions that maybe somebody else who is a novice in the space would ask questions about, which I think really made the content user-friendly. I'm gonna pivot the conversation just a little bit and ask something that's very nosy, <laughs> which is how do you make money with your 
your brand, your online business. So obviously you're making money with your, your book. I'm hoping that you're doing paid speaking, especially as things open up more and we're able to speak in front of audiences in person and also online. But how are you building out revenue streams so this is sustainable for you? That's a really good question. I have a tiered approach and, and I literally just kind of like solidified this. I won't call it mastery yet, mm-hmm. but I have a tiered approach to this where, you know, like I said, this started off as a passion project. So I was giving away game for free. And um, then of course I published the book. So it's like, okay, well, you can contribute to the, you know, Rock Him Fund by buying, you know, this book. But I realized that I needed to offer more. The tiered, I guess, approaches, there's a lot of free stuff out there, right? You know, I joke often and telling people that I'm Googleable now, right? I have a I have a knowledge panel on Google. You can type my name in and you know stuff will pop up. And so with that, I am pretty consistent as a contributor to multiple publications. Um, I've had some features and some other publications. So there is a digital footprint out there that says, okay, Rakim is sharing his thought leadership on the topic. Of course, engaging on social media is another means to do that, but that's all free stuff. Then there's the book, right? So like you get exposure to me, you wanna learn more, you pay for one or both of my books. Recently, I launched a course. Uh, it's called Improve Your Money Mindset. So that's a little bit, you know, now now we're kind of dating, right? Like you're you're paying a little bit more um, than maybe you would have in any other circumstances, but not quite getting, you know, my energy, my effort, my insight, and and catered specifically to you and your circumstances. And um, you know, the top of the line in terms of services offered is is definitely coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do one-on-one and group coaching, obviously a premium service. So it, it, it's going to come with a little bit more of a hefty price tag. Somebody who's serious, who's kind of vetted me out, or maybe they haven't vetted me out, but they saw like some of the big brands that I'm associated with. Um, and they're like, okay, I want to work with you. You know, you, you seem like a stand-up guy, whatever. And so we'll have that conversation kind of determining, are we a fit for each other? And I think that that's important outside of that you know, there is definitely more of an ecosystem. Uh, So I have a separate entity that kind of coincides with the work that I do that's specific to consulting. So, you know, I'll do, like you said, paid speaking, paid workshop facilitation, corporate consulting around why is it important to introduce not just financial literacy, but financial empowerment to your employees. Like how does that impact your bottom line as a business owner? And why does that make your employees more happy, less stressed? How do we wrestle through, you know, the shame, the guilt, the anxiety that comes with issues around money, especially in the midst of a pandemic, right? There's a lot of people who are, you know, kind of getting a wake-up call when it comes to their good or bad habits as it relates to their money. Mm. So um, those are various angles that I kind of take. Some of the publications that I contribute to will also pay. So I get paid to do what I love. I get paid to write and share information. Sometimes I try to align those to trending topics. I um, recently published an article for The Grio, kind of uh, highlighting takeaways from the collaboration between Jay-Z and Nas on DJ Khaled's new album. I love that so much. I actually, I think I've shared it on Twitter as well. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I got super excited. 
<laughs> and actually, I'm going to interrupt you to say this. One thing about the content you're sharing and one thing about DJ, DJ Khaled. So in terms of the content you're sharing, I love that you're, you are in a, 100% in alignment with sharing content that's in alignment, not only with you as like you and your life experience, but also who you serve in your brand. I think that sometimes people will take projects and there's a misalignment and that will be problematic in the end. So you saying, you know what, Robert Kiyosaki, I was a fan, but this is problematic and just outlining why. I have a lot of respect for digital content creators who do that because it's very easy to say nothing especially if you don't want to make waves part of the reason why i've created my business and i'm doing what i'm doing is i don't want to ever be in a professional capacity where i can't be 100 percent authentic about what i think or how i view a situation and so i really appreciate that you are able to that you you pursue projects that allow you to share what you think on these bigger platforms. And then the other thing is DJ, DJ Khaled cracks me up because his entire business is collaboration. And I think that that is something that's so underrated. Like people don't understand. Even this conversation is collaboration to a certain extent because it's time out of your day, but I'm gonna get you in front of the audience and I'm gonna geek out about you like in order for you, for me to even extend the invitation, I'm already excited. And so it's me as a, as a host, as a podcast host with a, with a platform saying, this is someone you need to check out. And so I wanted to interject with that and say, I'm excited about that article. <laughs> and, and also that DJ Khaled cracks me up because he, all he does is collaborate and there's something to learn from that. Oh yeah. And he makes a lot of money doing it. I mean, he, he does a very good job with that collaboration. And he's nice, no no attitude, unproblematic. All he does is pray and love his kids and his family. Like that's all he does and collaborate. Yep. yep, and I think that that is an aspect to, you know, financial, we'll call it freedom or wealth building that is so underutilized, especially in our communities. There is this attitude around you know, I'm doing it, so you can't do it. And if you are doing what I'm doing, then, you know, we're in competition with one another and not enough, you know, and I'm going to contradict myself in a second, but not enough collaborations to say, okay, you're doing something, I'm doing something. How can we work together to make both of our somethings something special? Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's an interview that I did not too long ago where I talk about how we African-Americans are a very collaborative people by nature. And so that's why I said, I'm going to contradict myself in a second, because I think we get away from that based off of what we're fed in the media. And there's like this desire to flaunt our wealth and say, yeah, I'm doing well. And my doing well is contingent on the fact that, you know, the people around me are not doing as well. And so I think, a major turning, a major turning point in what our um, wealth, collective wealth, looks like as a community, is going to rest in our acknowledging the power in collaboration. I think about this topic, actually, this issue, quite a bit, and 
being that I live in a very white state, I find that we collaborate more here because we just have to. And it's, it's not just black people. Like it's, there aren't large communities of people of color here. So we all tend to collaborate on different projects and stuff just so that we can amplify our voice because, voices because if we don't, no one's going to know what we're doing. I think that sometimes there is a spirit of competition in other places because we are fed, you know, the lie that in order for one person to succeed, someone else has to fail. And I wish that people understood that you just do the simple math, right? Like it takes very few, for me to do well in my business, it actually takes very few customers depending on the product that, that you're purchasing from me. And so I wish more people would hear the message that you don't have to compete with other people. There's 300 million people up in this country. What are the numbers behind what creates success for you financially as an entrepreneur? And I feel like if people spent more time doing the, the numbers, they could move away from these emotional reactions to a situation that could be like completely outside of their control. You know, that could be crazy talk. No, I, you're, you're, you're spot on. I, I completely agree with you. I think you said something about the emotional reaction there and, you know, that emotional reaction is tied into scarcity. And, you know, that's, that's part of the work that I do. You talk about financial empowerment and how is that different from, you know, educating people purely from a financial literacy perspective, you know, that's it. It's the mindset and, and, and saying that, you know, there's not enough resources to go around. And so, of course, if, you know, I see somebody doing well, then that means that I can't be doing as well as they are. And, and you know, that's a lie. It's, it's an illusion that's fed to us. And, you know, that's where I spend 90% of, of, of my time when I'm working with clients and saying like, hey, like, let's assess, do an audit of what are your beliefs around money? You know, why do you believe that? What is it that you have experienced or are maybe not experienced that contributing to that view and then how do we change that how do we get you focused on you and embracing what is abundance how do you feel about this whole idea of brand building for online businesses is it a ridiculous notion or is it something that people do need to pay attention to or like what are your thoughts when you hear that that phrase uh, something that's near and dear to me for sure I think it, it's essential and it can go in so I mean this conversation can go in so many different ways but you know just kind of to keep it tame personal branding in this day and age um, especially with social media being so prevalent it, it's an absolute must because so much of our identities are tied into the work that we do to survive, right? You know, we're working a, a job, we're working in a corporate environment or what have you, you know, you think about how many hours out of the week you're spending in that, in that space. And then the rude awakening that occurs when you're no longer on the payroll. So it's like, okay, now I have to start all over. Well, what do I have to show for that? I have my resume. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> right? Like, what does that mean? How does that demonstrate you know, what it is that you are passionate about or what it is that you are competent in. And so when I lead with my brand, right, I, I shared, you know, earlier that I'm Googleable. Well, I'm certain that, you know, potential employers or clients or, you know, whatever side of the spectrum you want to look at are going to Google me. And I am very conscious down to the day, sometimes down to the hour, 
what is going to show up on Google when you type in Rock and Sabrina? Because I check. I check every single day. You know, fortunately, knock on wood, there's nothing that kind of pops up that is alarming or untrue about me. Uh, but the the moment that it is, I'm going to know. And then, you know, it's it's time to execute a plan on how do we how do we fix that? But you know, somebody on the outside looking in, wanting to know more about Rakim Sabri without actually interacting with Rakim Sabri, is going to see, okay, this guy is passionate about writing. Uh, you know, that's how that's how Google uh, labels me as a writer. Mm-hmm. He's passionate about financial literacy and or empowerment. And they're going to see all the assets that come with the work that I do, articles that I've published, places that I've been featured, uh, awards and recognition that I've received. And so you're going to create an image of me in your mind before you get an opportunity to talk to me. And so you know, how much sweat off my back is it to know that the image of me that you're going to create in your mind is based off of the work that I've intentionally done to make sure that you see me the way that I want you to see me. Mm. You're currently in the banking space, but you're doing all this content in finance, personal finance. Is there a conflict or is there a concern that your employer your main employer brings up about that content are you having to straddle that as a conversation and what advice do you have for people who might may find themselves sharing content similar to what they do in their day job yes is the answer a very strong yes is the answer Mm. it's something that I have to be conscious of it's something that I have taken steps to constantly mitigate and you know use the word defer their concerns uh, and, and kind of redirect it, right? So I'll tell you, all of my social media platforms are public. Anybody, including my employer, can go in, search for Rockem Sabri. I mean, in fact, all of my social media platforms are attached to my knowledge panel on Google. So, you know, they can see what it is that I'm putting out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have a very strict policy, personal policy around accepting coworkers or people that work for the same company that I do for that matter onto my uh, like personal Facebook or my personal Instagram account. I kind of try to limit it to LinkedIn and that's almost out of just necessity. Like, you know, these people are reaching out to you and you wanna, you know, be engaged as an employee. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for a long time, my content strategy excluded LinkedIn because I did not want questions asked about, you know, what is this about? What is that about? Mm-hmm. And then I blew up, right? Like there are certain things that you just can't hide anymore. Like you did a TED talk, you're <laughs> they're, like, <laughs> they're like, wait a minute, you were on the news? Was that yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> so then I, I had to have, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that you, this stuff is out there. It, it, it's very easily accessible to anybody who's looking for it. And it should be, you know, the work that I'm doing should be celebrated. It should be exposed. It's, it, that's the desire. That's the reason why I do it. And so we've had conversations, I mean, I've had conversations with HR, you know, my direct leadership around, okay, how do you guys define a conflict of interest? Mm. How do you guys define the perception of a conflict of interest? What is it that you would view as interfering with my role? And I think the question that comes up most frequently is how do I have time to do all of these things and work? Interesting. It's a foreign concept that you can take the hours outside of nine to five 
and put it towards something that you want to create, right? Like the expectation is that you work hard during the day, you come home, you rest, and you, you veg you out right house. on the couch. <laughs> but you know, I I've invested you know significant amount of time, especially in the beginning parts of this process, and you know, making sure that I was working after work. I had to get my second one and say, okay, like now I'm gonna be up and I'm gonna you know, the whole process of writing my second book, all of the articles that I write, like I don't do any of that stuff on the clock, but it's not something that most people do. So it's, it definitely comes into question. Uh, at the same time, I align what it is that I'm doing to the values of the company. So it would be extremely kind of like prudish of them to come at me from a perspective of, well, you can't do these things. If I'm saying, well, your company core values talk about, you know, service, talk about, you know, education. I am providing an education, a financial education, the industry that we share um, to the community. And so then, of course, it gets down to like splitting hairs, right? Like then you're like, okay, well, are you making money from this? If you're making money from this, you have to have this on file. Like I kid you not, and you know, this is full transparency, they asked me to um, to fill out a employee attestation form that says that these are the things that I do that either generated income or don't generate an income. So I had to say, you know, I co-founded a nonprofit. I'm an author of, you know, of two books. Of course, they see the TED Talk. They see, they see the articles for Entrepreneur. In fact, I listed Entrepreneur as an employer with air quotes on my LinkedIn profile. And then we had a whole meeting about that. Like, well, what is this? Are you getting paid for this? Are you leaving? And I'm wow. like, nope, completely free. I'm just sharing my thought leadership with the world. And then you think about how does that attack somebody's ego, especially at an executive level where, you know, I'm an EVP or I'm an SVP, or I'm a VP and I don't write for entrepreneur. I haven't written any books, written any books. I haven't delivered a TED talk. And so it's just kind of like, well, you know, who is this guy? Where does he come from? And where does he get the nerve to, first of all, even approach anybody to do these things? But second yeah. of all, like, why is it, why is he doing these things? Like, for what? Well, now, another question that I get pretty frequently, I want to say maybe on a yearly basis is, well, what is your commitment to the company? And you know, are you using this as a stepping stone or, you know, are you here in the long haul? And so then you have to play the politics game. I have so many thoughts and I <laughs> it's really appreciate your candor around that question because I think that especially for people of color doing things that make them stand out and stand outside of the role that they're currently in there is conflict that can occur unexpectedly some of these things that you're being asked to to justify I'm just fascinated by. I fortunate in that I I do this on my own. I'm self-employed at this point. I'm my boss now. But when I left my old job, that was when I was first starting to do stuff and it wasn't making money or anything, but 
occasionally there was a conversation, but it was so different from what my job was that I don't think there would have been an issue for quite a while because my job was in education. It would have taken quite a bit for those conversations to happen. But because you're in banking, I was wondering before we got on, what are those conversations like? And I'm going to just share my personal experience with me doing what I'm doing has allowed me to grow professionally a lot faster than in the role that I was in. And the reason why is there were things that I dreamed that I could do that maybe my employer would say no to. So right now I'm writing a book. And even though I worked in education, I think they would have said yes to, of course you could write a book, but maybe they would have talked down the topic or something. The, the academics are very academics are weird. They can kind of poo-poo your ideas if it's not cerebral enough. I have a brand partnership of sorts with Experian. That never would have happened. That never would have happened. I never would have done anything to position myself where Experian would have reached out to me to do a project with them. It just never would have happened. I think that companies are starting to see that for employees to be engaged internally, it's not just the money. I want accolades. I want to share my wisdom. I want more, you know, like I want opportunities. And sometimes within your role, not all of that doesn't align. And there's an ego, I think, that can get impacted on behalf of the people who supervise you and who watch you grow. And maybe you're growing beyond them. And that could also be an issue. And they can see. I'll just add that 100%. I'm growing beyond them. And, you know, for anybody who's interested, my pinned tweet on Twitter, uh, you know, kind of talks talks about my experience, you know, in, in the corporate space. And, you know, I, I, I try to be as diplomatic as possible because, like I said, I know everything is public. But I talk about how, you know, corporate America, you know, really gaslights you into doubting yourself. and yep. And not feeling like you deserve or that you're entitled to, you know, like you said, be loud and stand out, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about academics and I think about banking and I think about corporate as a whole and just the engagement around that tweet, a lot of people react to it and share their experiences as being like spot on in relation to how I, you know, organize my thoughts in that tweet. You know, it, it's so true that there is ego involved in, well, how did he do this or how could he do this? And I'll tell you, you know, two things coming out of, you know, working in corporate one, I think just my hypersensitivity to the fact that this could be perceived as a conflict of interest mm-hmm. really helped me niche down. Um, where I say that 90% of the work that I do is not specific to talking to people about their money, but their mindsets about money. You know, I think that that's very intentional and the combination of a lot of different things. But definitely, I think corporate has a, has a, a part to play in that. And um, the second thing is that, like I said, these people, I hate to, to, to use that term, but like these people are not looking at life in the same way that I am in terms of, you know, you get to, you get to decide, you get to, you know, make waves, you get to grab the bull by the horn, so to speak, and dictate and determine the direction that you go. And it takes a different level of thinking, right? It takes rejecting what is the norm, what is the status quo, and that I'm going to put all of my energy into being the best corporate citizen possible. And I'm going to show up early and stay late and, you know, take on stretch assignments and do unpaid work. And that is the expectation. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And now you got me on a on a venting mode. I'm going to share this. I'm going to share this as diplomatically as possible, right? Because uh, I'm going to be very transparent. Right. The last performance review, I've never had a negative performance review in the entire time that I've worked for corporate. I'm, I mean, nobody could ever say that I'm underperforming. But the last maybe two performance reviews that I've had, I've gotten average. And I always strive for an exceeds. And the conversation that was had um, following the delivery of that review was that, well, you know, nobody can question the fact that you're doing the work, Rakim. You're definitely doing the work and you're doing the work well. Where you can move from a meet to an exceeds is in you asking for more, you asking for more responsibility, you over delivering, you over performing, you know, you don't wait for us to come to you and say, okay, we need you to do this. You say, I have capacity in my day. What else can I take on from you? That's the difference between what is um, average performance and what is high performance. And I'm like, okay, I have a 40 hour work week on average, right? Because of course, as a salary employee, you can work more, you can work less. Right. And you're expecting me to create capacity in my schedule to ask for more to get paid the same so that you can give me an exceeds on my review. Oh my God. Cool. I'm going to share a story as we wrap up this conversation. I feel like I could talk to you <laughs> for another hour and I'm not going to do that to you, but I'm just telling you, you're so interesting that I could literally talk to you for another hour. Part of what was a tipping point for me towards the end of my last job was I was salaried. I was a student services coordinator. I'd grown my job. It just was killing it. I was doing all this work, whatever. And I was starting to get really upset about the reviews, you know, that I would get. And part of the issue was you could never, ever get exceeds expectations as a rule. No one could get that. And I'm like, what is the point? If I can never exceed expectations and I'm giving you this much capacity, beyond what my capacity is to be a healthy human why am I motivated to be here like what what's my why and then obviously your raises are tied to your evaluations so you can never exceed expectations because as a organization that doesn't exist like that just no one gets it then you always get these mediocre reviews or evaluations of your work and then that translates into the raises or lack thereof you would get. So that last year I got my average review and, I, and I'm like, I work with 600 freaking people doing immigration and five of you dummies ended up on the national news throughout this year, creating problems to the point that even now in 2021, it might take one more year, but I could still end up being asked by the state department questions about some of these people because of what they did that hit the national news because of my role at that school. And so finally I got my quote unquote raises and I figured out that with the amount of work that I was doing and the commute and all that, that the raise was like a quarter an hour. <laughs> when it was all said, and I, was, I was like, you must think I'm insane to keep up with this. And so I was like, I'm out. And I put in a notice, a long notice, which I don't recommend, but I was the only person doing immigration and all the other jobs that I was doing. I put in a four month notice. I bought a ticket to Hawaii and Australia for two days after my last day. And I was out. I was like, you know what? I'm done. You gaslit me for way too long. 
and I'm yep. out of here. I will say that I appreciated my nine to five in the sense that I learned a lot of skills and a lot of the things that I use in my business now. But I, I think that people, especially Americans and people of color, I think we need to look at work through a clearer lens. And I think COVID in particular has helped shift people's expectations and understanding of the role that their work plays in their life. 100%. And I'm here 100%. for it. I am here for it. Yeah, I was going to share this really quickly. So, I mean, we exist in the money Twitter circles, right? And, you know, that ongoing debate that is just so tired at this point around promoting entrepreneurship and putting down, you know, the nine to five community. It's so crazy because like you, my experience over the last 10 years has been so instrumental in placing me where I am today, right? When I look at, you know, the knowledge that I have, the skill sets that I have, my investment portfolio, you know, those are all things that, you know, I do not take for granted and that I am extremely grateful for in the experience that I've had. But, you know, like you said, when you know it's time to go, you know it's time to go and you take what it is that you've learned and you you, you go and you move on. And so I just kind of want to underscore that too for, you know, anybody listening who has been privy to those conversations, like, 100%, there's no shame in the nine to five. But like you said, reframing, what are our expectations around, you know, committing time, energy, and, you know, effort over the course of, you know, decades is very important. And where we land, finally, if we do want to embrace that life of corporate citizenry, or do we want to branch out and do something on our own? It does drive me nuts, though, that people want to talk down the choice that people make. I'm not paying your mortgage. I'm not paying your rent. It's not my right to talk down or judge how you do what's best for you. And I think that that's the other thing too that I want to share as a entrepreneur is I am so thankful and grateful for the work that I've done, all my jobs, because I learned something from all of them. When I was cleaning those filthy houses at CU Boulder for the summer, Oh my God, it's disgusting. I've cleaned houses. I've worked at Starbucks. I've worked at university, you know, like I've done a lot of things and they all prepared me for what I do now. And I think that that's something I'm very aware of. I think the last question, there's two super simple ones. What's the one piece of advice you would give to someone, especially if they're POC or allied voice who wants to create a business that's serving in the gap, such as yours, serving people of color in the personal finance space, or I just spoke with Melanie Lockhart, who runs a whole platform about mental health and, and wealth, which is something that we don't hear a lot about. What would your advice be? Uh, I have two pieces of advice, actually. I think, you know, first off, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, the collaboration is so important. There's just so much work that needs to be done. And one person cannot do it all by themselves. And then, you know, it's a very varied type of work right so like you know we talk about wealth building and financial literacy um and you, you know there's so many angles like you can't master all of them right real estate investing in the stock market now the rise of cryptos you know just all of those things like it's impossible for you to just be the best at everything second piece of advice is that um and this is probably not going to be a very popular piece of advice but sometimes we have to look outside of the community right yeah. like there's a lot that i have learned 
there is a lot that I have accomplished and there's a lot that I'm grateful for based off of the kindness or recognition or, you know, chance that was given to me based off, you know, from people who are not in my community, who do not recognize the value of what it is that I'm presenting because they don't know any better. That's okay. You know, it's okay for you to go out and learn. It's okay for you to go out and experience. I mean, making this very relatable, right? I took a trip to Iceland. Right. I would never. Oh my God, that's such on my list. What? No, it's so, it's like literally in the top two of my list of places to go right now. I'm very excited about this. Okay, keep going. And I say, I think, I think people should, I think, you know, it's definitely Black people should. But when I went out there, I was very conscious of the fact that I counted six Black people in the entire time that I was there. And I I won't say that I was there for a very long time, maybe, um, I think, three to four days. That's because like, you live on the East Coast. You, you need to live yeah. in Colorado. <laughs> Colorado you're, you're just like, well, okay. <laughs> and, but, you know, the value in that experience, first of all, is like Iceland is, you know, when you say that to somebody, it's like, oh, Iceland, like that's exotic. And then you get to talk about the experiences and everything out there. But I I did not like the food. I, you know, I, I, I won't say that I had a horrible time. I learned a lot. You know, Iceland is very advanced when it comes to, you know, geothermic energy and you know, how they are just a very clean, environmentally conscious uh, nation, but it was cold. <laughs> it was cold. I did not like the cold, you know, the multiple like, blizzards while we I were there. I love cold. <laughs> <laughs> I go like snowboarding. I like <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> but, um, but that was, that, you know, that was an experience and, and it was a worthwhile experience. It was getting outside of the comfort zone. It was my first time across the Atlantic Ocean it prompted, you know, several other trips. I mean, since Iceland, I went to, you know, Barcelona, Spain and, you know, Casablanca, Morocco. So like you get a taste of what is outside of our sphere of exposure by going outside of our sphere of exposure. And, you know, that's necessary for growth. I I love it. And, and for those of you who are like, cause Rakim was being very nice. If you are white and you're not used to talking to people of color, go meet some and not be, don't be weird about it. Vice versa. If you're black and you're not used to white people, same thing. We're just going to be blunt. These different life experiences can really impact the growth of your business. And, and I'm going to be candid and say, there are a lot of white people who, who have invested in what I've done. And without them, I wouldn't have a business. Period. Period. I just wouldn't. Likewise, I have a lot of black and brown friends who invested in my business and without them, I would have no business. I just wouldn't. And so I think being open to um, different viewpoints and experiences and, and folks, especially as an entrepreneur, can expand your business in ways you could never imagine. And you might get advice and feedback and information that you may not otherwise not get if you stay within your own sphere of influence, if you will. So I'm going to be super blunt about that. Without these people, I would not have a business whatsoever. And he's being quiet because he's like, oh, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I agree with you 100%. I I do agree with you. (laughs) How can we find you and follow you and buy your book and all the things? I I will include the links in the show notes. Yeah, so everything is Rakim Sabri. I I try to, you know, like you said, we talked about personal branding. Like I've I've made my name into a brand. So uh, Rakim Sabri on Twitter, Instagram, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook. And then my website is also my name, rockhamsabri.com. From there, it really connects you to, you know, what is the suite of services that I have, my course, my books, 
how to get in contact with me, my other social media. And um, like I said, you know, I'm Googleable. So type my name into Google, see what's out there, what you, you know, pick what you want to listen to, what you want to engage with. And uh, I'm, I'm approachable. My DMs are always open. All right, people, you heard it first. He is killing it. Definitely follow what he's doing online. His resources are amazing. And um, I do want to highlight the fact that he created a lot of his opportunities. If you're sitting on a book idea, if you're sitting on a concept that you're like, maybe I should do it, do it. Don't worry about the market being saturated. Is the market saturated, by the way, Rockin? No, the market is never too saturated for your unique voice and experiences. That's all That's all he wrote. So with that, we went a little over the time I thought we were going to do, but it was so interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And I am just so excited to see what next year and the, you know, the years beyond have in store for you. I, th- I think only good things. Thank you. And I, I share that sentiment. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your work and, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you put out there as well.